I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast where we explore how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brain makes us human. This is episode 148, and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. As always, you can find complete show notes and episode transcripts at my website, brainsciencepodcast.com, and you can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Last month, I talked about Charlotte Nessam's new biography, Lessons from the Lobster, Eve Martyr's Work in Neuroscience. This was a fairly technical discussion of the work of one of neuroscience's true pioneers, and we focused on some of Martyr's most important discoveries. This month, I want to share the conversation I had with Dr. Martyr back in 2009. Although I have interviewed many scientists over the years, this interview is special because Dr. Martyr tells us what it was like being a female scientist back in the days when most scientists were men. She also tells us about the somatogastric ganglion of the lobster and why she has devoted decades of her career to trying to understand how it works. I usually save my announcements to after the interview but I need to mention that there are still slots available for the trip to Australia in May 2019, but the deadline for putting down a deposit is October 1st, 2018. So if you think you want to go, you need to send me an email today, brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, so that I can send you the information you need so you can decide whether to sign up. I will talk more about this after the interview, but October 1st is not very far away, so don't delay. I had the privilege of meeting today's guest, Dr. Eve Martyr, at the Society for Neuroscience's annual meeting, which I attended in Washington, D.C. last November. Dr. Martyr is a full professor at Brandeis University, where she's been on the faculty since 1978. She just finished a very successful year as president of the Society for Neuroscience. Dr. Martyr has won numerous awards, and as Wikipedia notes, she has done seminal studies in rhythm generation, neuromodulation, and in computational neuroscience. Today's interview has three main topics. In the first half of the interview, we talk about Dr. Martyr's career as one of the first women in neuroscience and we talk about the Society for Neuroscience. In the second half of the interview, we talk about her research into the structure and function of the somatogastric ganglion of the lobster. Dr. Martyr reveals why this circuit of only 30 neurons has fascinated researchers for over 30 years. Eve Martyr, it's a great privilege to have you on the Brain Science Podcast today, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
Can we start out by letting you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a working neuroscientist, and I realized the other day I've been in this field for about 35 years. So you can see that I'm not quite on the tail end of my career, but I've been in the field quite a long time. Can you tell us how you got started? Oh, yeah. I actually, as a young person, as an elementary school and high school student, I loved all kinds of fields, and I had no idea what I was going to end up being or doing eventually. When I was a very small child, I used to always say that I was going to be a scientist because as a child, the first time someone asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up and I said, a scientist, they said, oh, that's wonderful. So I found it was a very acceptable answer to give, so I used to always give it. But as I went through high school, I actually was one of the students who really loved school, and I loved all kinds of learning. I was extremely good in biology, but I was also good in other things, and I really enjoyed many, many things. As a high school student, I was quite involved in the local civil rights movement. This was I graduated from high school in 1965. So my high school years were during the free speech movement and the beginning of the civil rights movement. Where were you growing up? At this time, I went to high school in Westchester County in New York. So I lived in Irvington-on-Hudson, which is 10 or 12 miles north of Manhattan, north of the Bronx and north of Manhattan. And I went to a very small high school, which was nonetheless a very fine school, paradoxically, because... This community had a very large number of wealthy estates, and therefore there was a large number of people who paid very high property taxes and sent their children to the schools. So the schools were very well funded, and I had a number of excellent teachers, and I really received, in retrospect, probably one of the best high school educations that any of my peers did, and certainly far better education at that point than many people in the 20 or 30 years afterwards received in most public schools. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I actually entered college thinking I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. And that was because I was idealistic. I was engaged in the civil rights movement. So I started intending to study politics and to go to law school. Because I had placed out of many of my science requirements by the end of my freshman year, I realized that if I didn't take more science, I wouldn't be doing it because I didn't have to. And I said, well, I'm going to miss it. So I decided in my sophomore year to go back and take chemistry and biology, thinking, I think, at the back of my head, well, you can always go to graduate school in English if you have a biology degree, but it's not so easy to go to biology graduate school if you have a politics degree. (laughs) So I was being a little pragmatic. And then I think the next really important step was I'd had this wonderful course as a freshman in political theory. So when I declared as a politics major, the next course I took was one in the politics of Western Europe. And I hated this course because we had to learn the names of every single political party in every country in Europe after World War II. And it was just excruciating. At the end of that course, I just decided... Now, if this is what politics is all about, is this for me, I'm going to go back and be a biology major. Now, obviously, I shouldn't have generalized from one bad course, or maybe that's really what I wanted to do in any case. So I went back to being a biology major with not much thought behind it. And the real sort of turning point came my first semester of my junior year 
when I had a very good friend who was some kind of literature major, but had a sister who had been diagnosed as autistic, and later I realized she must have had a genetic neurodegenerative disorder. And she wanted to learn about autism, so she went to the first day of class in a course in abnormal psychology, and she came back from this class and said, Eve, you have to take this course because the professor wears extraordinary clothes and he has a dueling scar. So we were very romantic. So I went to class and yes, he was very distinguished and he wore beautiful three-piece suits and he spoke very well and he definitely had a scar on his face that looked like what we imagined would be a dueling scar. So she and I took this class in abnormal psychology together. Now, this was 1967, probably the fall of 1967, and we were learning all about schizophrenia. And this was the time when schizophrenia was thought to occur as a consequence of the famous double-bind hypothesis. It was a very different time in our understanding of mental illness. But this professor said, in passing one day, oh, there's some biological hypotheses that schizophrenia might actually have, you know, a real biological underpinning. And we had to do a paper. And at some point, he said, and there's some suggestions that deficient inhibition in the brain might account for schizophrenia. And I said to myself, well, I didn't know anything about inhibition in the brain. And I was a biology major, so I decided to do my paper to answer the question, could deficient inhibition in the brain be causative for schizophrenia? So I went to the science library and I read everything I could find about inhibition in the brain. And it was in that process of writing the paper that I decided to be a neuroscientist. I must say there wasn't all that much to read at the time. It would not be possible to do that today. But in 1967, there really wasn't all that much known about inhibition. And there wasn't actually even all that much known about the brain. So that's what started me. And then the next semester, I took the only neuroscience course available. And I learned the basics of cellular signaling, and I knew at that point that that's what I wanted to do, that I was going to go to graduate school to study neuroscience. I think it's probably very likely I would have arrived at the same place by a different route, but it is amusing to think about the ways in which undergraduates in particular make decisions about courses that can change their life trajectories. There's something else I should tell you about that time which is, I think, quite important in the history of women in science that I think we should talk about. When I was an undergraduate studying biology, I was one of very few women studying biology. There were 50 biology majors, maybe there were four or five women in most of my courses. And in my first neuro course, I think I was one of two women in a class of 30. So we were still relatively rare although not anywhere as rare as the number of women in physics and math courses in junior senior level. The year I applied to graduate school was a year that changed the face of the life sciences research in this country because I was applying in 1968, in the fall of 1968, and I graduated from college in 1969. Right around my senior year is when the draft laws changed. Previously, it was the case that graduate school was draft deferrable along with undergraduate education. And right around then, they changed the law and went to the lottery. And so graduate school in biology was no longer draft deferrable, which meant that the pool of available men to go on into plain PhD programs dropped precipitously in that year. As a consequence, when I arrived in graduate school, in the fall of 1969 at UCSD, 
my class had 13 women out of 30. And the prior year, there had been two women out of 30. And what had happened at UCSD is they had accepted 60 people, of which 13 were women. And all 13 women said yes and matriculated, and 17 men matriculated. So in that one or two year time frame, because the demographics of the applicant pool changed, the demographics of the graduate schools in biology changed across the country. What that meant was that by the time I was finishing my PhD, many more young women were receiving their PhDs and then moving on. One of the things that I find so interesting is how rapidly the demographics of entering graduate school changed and how slowly the demographics of women in major at the full professorate level, if you will, how slowly that has changed. And there are all sorts of really interesting conversations we could have about that, but I have no sense of humor about it precisely because I lived that first year as we entered as a cohort in large numbers. And so I find it very painful to realize that that cohort was not able to move as an intact cohort through the system. So after you got your PhD, did you go straight to Brandeis? Have you been there your whole career? No, I went to UCSD for graduate school. Partially, I really wanted to go to California. I had romantic ideas about well, especially at the time you were going to school. Exactly. My husband's the same age. In fact, as far as that whole graft deferment thing goes, that cost him a fellowship at Northwestern. He ended up in the Air Force instead. As did many men, yeah. So I was finishing my PhD. I actually completed it in the fall of 1974, and it was time to look for a postdoc. And at the time... I was doing work in what might be called invertebrate neuropharmacology. For my thesis work, I tried to figure out what the neurotransmitters were in the stomatogastric ganglion of the lobster pennularis interruptus, that's the spiny lobster that lives off the coast of La Jolla, where I was. There were relatively few people working in that general area, and I ended up deciding to spend one year as a postdoc at the University of Oregon with David Barker, who was a very fine single-cell neurochemist. And then I wanted to go to Paris to basically get further training in physiology and pharmacology. Specifically, I wanted to work with Jack Sukiho, who, as far as I was concerned, had published the most beautiful papers in invertebrate pharmacology of anybody in the world. And I was additionally fascinated to obviously go to Paris, but also to see how a woman who had two small children, how she managed to combine family and science and do such elegant work. On top of that, this being the 1973-74, when I was making these decisions, I was very disenchanted with the politics of the United States. And not unlike the recent period in our recent past, the notion of leaving the U.S. for a while seemed very, very attractive. So I did that. I went to Oregon for one year, and then I moved to Paris, and I got there somewhere in December of probably 1975, and I stayed there until September of 1978 and spent those years as a postdoc. As a young American in Paris at a time when Americans in Paris were really not all that acceptable, 
I arrived having studied French for many, many years in high school and college, but never knowing how to speak the language. So I arrived off the plane and I didn't understand a word of what anybody said to me. And then over the next few years, I learned a lot of biophysics and a lot of French. And I think this is a very important message that maybe you'll come back to. I constantly did things that people were advising me not to do. People always told me, don't leave the country for a postdoc or you'll never get a job. And I would always say, well, what's this job stuff? I just want to do what I want to do now. You know, when I first started graduate school, people said, why are you starting graduate school? Don't you know there'll be no jobs? And I sort of said, well, all I know is I want to go to graduate school. I was never very concerned about long-term prospects. I only sort of said, does this make sense for me now for the short-term future? Because this is what I want to do and I'll face the future when the future arrives. And I always somehow had the confidence that things would work out in one way or another. So when I went off to do a postdoc in Europe, people said to me, don't do that, you'll never get a job. In retrospect, having gone to France, I think helped me get a job because it made me stand out from the crowd a little bit more. It made me a little more unusual. And it showed people that I had independence and the willingness to do what I wanted to do. So I was never a cog in somebody else's machine, so to speak. I came back to the United States in September of 1978 to start as an assistant professor at Brandeis, and I've been here at Brandeis ever since. This month's sponsor is Babbel, the number one selling language learning app in the world. As all of you know, I think it's really important to learn foreign languages because it's great for our brain health. And I personally wish that I could speak Spanish because it's the fastest growing language group in the United States. Of course, with Babbel, you can learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Russian, Swedish, and many more. And you'll be speaking within just a few weeks with very simple lessons. 10 to 15 minute lessons are available in an app or online. All you have to do is go to Babbel.com and use the offer code GINGER, G-I-N-G-E-R, to get 50% off your first three months. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com, and the offer code is GINGER, G-I-N-G-E-R, for 50% off your first three months. Before we talk about your research in some detail, I wanted to congratulate you on your successful year as president of the Society for Neuroscience, and I suspect that the majority of my listeners are unfamiliar with the Society, so I was hoping you might talk about it for a few minutes. So the Society for Neuroscience is an organization that represents approximately 38,000 working neuroscientists in this country and around the world. It was initially primarily based in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. But today, something like 35% of its membership comes from Asia, Europe, South America, and Australia, and all over the world. A large number of our members are young, graduate students and postdocs. And so the Society for Neuroscience sees as its mission representing the career needs, the advocacy needs, and a variety of other needs that the broad membership has as the membership as a whole tries to do its job and 
make important discoveries about neuroscience at every level of analysis. The society has what we can call maybe three main sort of missions. One mission is every year announce a very large and very successful annual meeting. It's four and a half or five days long, and it's routinely attended by about 30,000 people. It consists of plenary talks, very high-level platform talks, where very eminent scientists are often asked to talk about their own work. And then there are symposia and mini-symposia, which are suggested by the membership about specific topics in the field. And then there's a very large set of posters where individual groups of one, two, three, four people will submit a poster that displays the outcome of their particular work. And so the meeting allows people sort of every level of their career to present their work to audiences of their peers. So that's one of the major activities of Society for Neuroscience. Second one of its major activities is it publishes the Journal of Neuroscience, which is one of the premier neuroscience journals. The journal is published every week and it's peer-reviewed and is a very, very successful part of the portfolio of journals in the field. The third sort of major set of activities that the Society for Neuroscience does, I can loosely call advocacy and career development or advocacy, career development, and public education. There are a number of activities that the society organizes to benefit its membership, such as lobbying Congress for additional funding for research in neuroscience, or creating a set of educational materials that can be helpful for K-12 teachers to try and work with their students. The society works very heavily on things like Brain Awareness Week, which is intended to educate students and the public about advances in neuroscience. And the society does a number of activities designed to promote public outreach and awareness of neuroscience through that part of its activities. And our members, I think, feel that as a whole, that the society really helps represent them and make sure that their work gets as broadly disseminated as it can. Yeah, I have to say, as a person who came to the meeting as a science journalist, that I was very impressed with the media department, how hard they work to make everything approachable for us, accessible, organizing the press conferences and the press room, and everybody that was working in there was so friendly and helpful. Well, I'm glad because Todd Benson and Mona Miller and that whole group work very, very hard to try and facilitate anybody who can help get the message about the importance of neuroscience work and also can actually explain to the public what the findings are and how they might be interesting or important to them. We really view it as part of our mission to figure out how to make everything that everybody's doing available and understandable to the greatest degree by the most number of people. Now, I listened to the incoming president, Dr. Tom Carew, talk. Mm -hmm. One of his personal passions is public outreach and public education. Would you say that that was also the focus of your presidency, or did you have a different focus? I think we all have a set of priorities. One of the things that I care a great deal about is trying to inform both Congress and the public about the very tight interplay between basic science, fundamental work, and then 
the application towards clinical outcomes. One of the things that as a basic scientist always concerns me is that people can forget that sometimes there can be a very long time delay between the fundamental science that gets done and the way 15 or 20 years down the road that finding can end up in the clinic making real changes in the way a given disease is understood and treated. And so part of what I spent a lot of time doing was trying to help the society in its advocacy and in its public education mission try and get the balance, the fine line between making it very clear that we all want to cure major brain disorders. We all want to do work that is important for human health and that it is also extremely important to remember that much of that human health work will come from very strange and unexpected places and findings that come in all sorts of animals and all sorts of different contexts. So that was a major part of what I was trying to do, as well as open things up for additional advocacy and public outreach. And remember, I was president under the Bush administration, and Tom Carew is starting out with the Obama administration. So the politics and Congress are quite different as well. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, and you might feel like you've already answered this, but I was going to ask you, what do you think the most important thing you accomplished during your presidency was? Was it what you just said? Yes, and I think also reminding the Society of Neuroscience and Congress of the other very important funding agency that deals with us, which is the NIH is the primary source of a lot of money for the funding of neuroscience, and its focus on human health is extremely important. The National Science Foundation, the NSF, also plays a very important role in funding basic work of all kinds and also plays a very important role in education and outreach. And so I also put some time and effort into reminding people that we as a society had to pay a lot of attention to the NSF budget as well as the NIH budget. That's a good point. It's easy to forget that life sciences at the basic level are also funded by NSF. And a lot of very important work has been primarily funded by the NSF. Because so much neuroscience happens at medical schools, people forget that. But a lot of very, very important findings were either funded by the NSF throughout the whole time of the project or sometimes were initially funded by the NSF and then they moved to the NIH. So that brings a question to my mind about the international membership. I know that a lot of those international members are graduate students that are studying in the United States, but you've also got a lot of scientists working outside the United States. They have different funding sources and different funding issues. Did you find that there were particular issues that were of concern to the international members? Well, I think one of the things that we had to start grappling with partially in my presidency and partially in the year or two running up to my presidency and that Tom is continuing to deal with is how to be really helpful to all of our foreign members in the way in which they approach their own governments. We have been trying to work out liaisons with organizations like FENS, which is the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies, and with EBRO, which is the International Brain Research Organization, and other international organizations. 
we've tried to figure out how to be as helpful as our international partners wish us to be in creating materials. Sometimes they're translated. Sometimes we can brainstorm with them. But obviously, the politics of science and science funding are different in every country. We were particularly helpful, I think, working in collaboration with our Canadian colleagues because some of our effort went into sort of building a set of materials with our Canadian colleagues that they then used to lobby their government successfully or increase funding for neuroscience. It's a very complicated issue to try and figure out how we can be helpful to our international colleagues, but they obviously, in their own local environments, have to deal with funding realities and bureaucratic conditions and all sorts of differences in educational philosophies and educational programs all around the world. No two countries are the same. It's a balancing act for us. We want to be helpful, but we obviously don't operate in 150 countries. Right. What about the increasing barriers to foreign students and foreign scientists coming into the United States, even just for meetings? So we work very hard in helping foreign students and postdocs get visas. The Society of Neuroscience writes, I think some years, hundreds and hundreds of letters in support of visa applications. We get hysterical emails, sometimes three days before the meeting from someone saying, you know, my visa application sitting, can you do something? And the office tries their absolute utmost to move things along with our government to make sure that they are given permission to enter. So we have often taken a leadership role in trying to argue that the kind of scientific work that we do should be more available to foreign workers. I don't have the sense it's as much of a problem in 2009 as it was several years ago. I hope that's true. I think that's true, but I'm not sure. I appreciate you taking so much time to talk about these issues because I think that they're important, but I definitely want to talk about your research. It's exciting to gain new insights about topics that interest me. And I know you share this excitement. That's why I love telling you about the Great Courses Plus, where you get unlimited access to their library of thousands of engaging video and audio lectures. You get to learn from award-winning experts in a wide variety of fields. And with the Great Courses Plus, you can stream lectures at any time from anywhere. You can start and pick up again from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. In fact, my favorite thing is the fact that you can listen to the audio-only version of any lecture on your phone. And this month, I'm recommending the course Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. In this course, you'll get a review of many subjects we've talked about in the past, and some of it will be familiar such as debunking the myth that we only use 10% of our brains. But you will also probably discover that over the many years of the Brain Science Podcast, a few myths might have accidentally seeped in. So watch out for the evidence. That's what really matters. This is the perfect course to get started with, or you can use any of the Great Courses Plus fantastic lectures. My listeners 
can get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. All you have to do is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger. So start your free trial today. Remember, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger. You've got nothing to lose, and I think you're going to really like it. Please do give it a try. Eve, do you want to start out by maybe just giving us an overview? You gave us a slight introduction earlier. I study a whole series of problems about how circuit dynamics arise from the interaction of groups of neurons hooked together, obviously, by synaptic mechanisms. I use a preparation called the crustacean stomatogastric nervous system. The stomatogastric ganglion has only 30 neurons, and the stomatogastric nervous system is an example of a central pattern generator. Central pattern generators are a group of neurons that can produce rhythmic motor patterns even in the absence of time signals from the muscles that they drive. So, for example, a central pattern generator is found in your respiratory centers that keeps you breathing. And one of the challenges is to understand how you can produce a circuit that works as if it were an oscillator that endogenously produces rhythms and then how those rhythms are modified so that the animal or the person can respond to changes in its environment. So if we think about respiration, you have to be able to change the rate at which you breathe depending on whether you're sleeping or running a marathon, but the existence of the breathing rhythm is independent of the sensory input. The reason why in the late 60s and the early 70s that people were drawn to the stomatogastric ganglion was because it was a small number of neurons, only about 30, and they were very large. The cell bodies of these neurons can be about 100 or 120 microns, so they're quite large, and they're very easy to record from. And so at the time, it was possible to do experiments in this preparation that were just unthought of. You know, you couldn't even imagine doing it in much larger vertebrate preparations like you would find in the spinal cord or in, you know, a rat or a mouse or a human. And over the years from, as I said, the late 60s and continuing on through today, a number of very important findings have been made using this preparation precisely because it was at the time, early on, possible to do experiments you couldn't do anywhere else. And it still is possible to do experiments using this preparation that are still very difficult to conceive of in larger circuits. Can you give an example? Yes. Early on, in the beginning of trying to understand circuits, before we knew very much, most people thought that to understand how a circuit worked, all you would need to do would be to establish a wiring diagram. So the idea was you would figure out what all the neurons were, who they were, and then how they were connected, and then that would tell you how the circuit worked. And people had in their minds electronic circuits where you would have a wire going from place one to place two, and you could imagine either an excitatory synapse or inhibitory synapse. 
and then people just sort of assumed that would be sufficient. Well, what happened is it became clear, partially through our work in the early 80s, that there were many properties of individual neurons and many properties of synapses were subject to neuromodulation. Neuromodulators are chemical substances that can do things like change the strength of a synapse or change the intrinsic excitability of a cell, change the way it responds to current. And so when we started studying neuromodulators on the stomatogastric ganglion, we realized that the circuit could have many different kinds of outputs depending on its modulatory environment. And that was something which the early workers on circuits just hadn't predicted. So instead of there being a single output, there'd be multiple outputs that the circuit now would be reconfigured by its modulatory environment. And that insight is one which pervades the way we think about things like emotional tone and mental illness in the brain today. And so that's the kind of sort of understanding that can have very big general implications, but that you can study more effectively sometimes if you have a small, well-defined circuit. So as long as we didn't have the ability to even define a circuit as small as the one you study, we could have the illusion that having the wiring diagram was all we needed. Exactly. Lots of people now have new tools with which they can study larger circuits, circuits in the mouse or circuits in rats or circuits other places. And people are working very, very, very hard to establish the wiring diagrams and connectivity diagrams of the larger circuits in the vertebrate brain. And I keep saying to them that circuitry is necessary but not sufficient. You can't explain how the circuit works without the wiring diagrams. You can't get there without them. But once you have the wiring diagram, that's when the real work starts. We've made an incredible progress in the field because now it's possible to identify cells in these larger circuits. And you have to be able to identify cells before you can actually create a wiring diagram. So they're only about 35 years behind us. As I was reading your papers, I noticed one of the themes that kept recurring was that just even identifying the types of cells is more difficult than non-neuroscientists might imagine. Right. And that's because it's pretty easy to identify a motor neuron because a motor neuron by definition is one that innervates or drives a muscle. It's pretty easy to identify a sensory neuron because by definition, that's a neuron that responds to a specific sensory input, whether it's proprioceptive or visual or auditory or taste or whatever. But for the very large number of cells in the middle, all of those cells that make the circuits that do all the really interesting things in brains that we care about, identifying the cells can be very complicated. Some of them have very characteristic shapes and very characteristic projection patterns or have characteristic chemical signaling molecules in them, or have characteristic receptors, or have characteristic firing patterns. But all of those criteria are often needed to specifically categorize or subcategorize individual cell types in a complicated brain. And so there have been a lot of errors made and a lot of missteps made in trying to really identify cells in large brains just because Sometimes you don't have enough criteria that can allow you to individually identify cells or groups of cells as a class 
you can make a lot of mistakes as you try and draw those wiring diagrams. But I think a lot of that's resolving now. There have been tremendous advances in the development of a lot of tools that really help. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the tools that you're developing within the model you work with? We don't really develop tools so much because lobsters and crabs are not a genetic organism. So a lot of the major advances that are being used in mice and in flies and worms that allow people to express dyes in individual cells or groups of cells, those things are much more difficult for us to try and implement. What we do is, in a sense, a little bit easier because we can uniquely identify cells without expressing these new molecular markers. We sort of haven't needed to do things like that. Does that make sense? Why don't I sort of snap forward to the present and try and describe to you how 35 years later, how it is, and sometimes when I give talks, I make a joke about this and say, how is it that hundreds of people have been able to study 30 neurons from a crab or a lobster for 35 years and still find really remarkable things to learn from that same small circuit? What I can do for you now is try and explain to you what we're doing today that builds on all the wealth of knowledge that we've developed over the years that I think is really quite new and important for the field. Any two-year-old in the world will tell you that he or she knows that every individual human is different. And they can recognize them as individuals. And they also know that every cat and dog is different. And they can usually recognize them as individuals. But we as experimentalists have spent many, many years sort of defying that individuality because we have always been terrified by the inadequacies of our experimental methods. And because we're terrified by the kinds of measurement errors that it's very easy for us to make, no matter what kind of measurement you're making, there's always the possibility of an experimenter-induced error. We have learned to rely very, very heavily on doing the same experiment many times and then calculating means and standard errors as a way of validating that our effects are real and important and reliable, etc. So, for example, people will do the same experiment on 20 mice and then average the results and then they'll publish a mean and a standard error and they'll compare those 20 mice in control with another 20 mice treated with something else, and they'll see a difference in the means and the standard errors, and they'll feel comfortable because the N has been large enough to make them believe that their data are reliable. And that is, by the way, the way we and many other people always have to work, and there are very good reasons for it, and there continue to be good reasons for it. But what that way of thinking walks away from is confronting the animal-to-animal variability in the population or the human-to-human variability in the population. And the stomatogastric nervous system has been so well studied for so long and has such a simple circuit. There's one LP neuron in every ganglion. So that neuron has been both extremely well studied and is an individual neuron that can be recognized over and over again. So at this point in the history of our preparation, we are now ready to ask a series of questions about individual variability because we have 
reached the point where when you get animal-to-animal variation, we now feel we can trust our measurements well enough after the years and years and years and thousands of neurons that have been recorded from to take at least part of that variability seriously. So what we have been trying to do is benefit from the simplicity of the preparation to really try and ask the question, how good is good enough? And what I mean by that is how tightly tuned to all the properties of an individual neuron or the strengths of all the synapses in a network have to be in order for the network to perform properly. In other words, the question is, how different can two LP cells be in two different ganglia and yet still have the ganglia work well enough for the crab or the lobster to be able to eat, which is what the ganglion helps it do? Or how many ion channels can there be of a certain type? In other words, does an LP cell have to have 492 sodium channels in every cell? Or can it be 492 in one cell and 893 in another cell? How big can those ranges be? And so this is a question that we can ask both using computational methods, building computer models, and doing experimental measurements. But we'd never be able to do this if we had a circuit that wasn't as well described or understood as ours is. So our circuit is just at the right level of complexity. It's big enough to have what we would call emergent properties, properties that depend on the interactions of cells and their synapses, and yet it's small enough so that we can record from every cell whenever we want to. So that's what we're doing right now. We're trying to really frame a set of questions, which we think are general to every problem in neuroscience, but that we can at least try and say, how tightly tuned does every part of the brain have to be for the brain to function correctly? And if you think about this, this is crucial to understanding disease, because if you think you've got to get every process in the brain tuned to within 1%, then it would be really hard to imagine that everybody wouldn't be mentally ill. But on the other hand, you can imagine that some processes might have a pretty large range in which the brain can function well, and others might be more narrowly tuned. And so we have to start creating vocabulary to try and understand the range of properties across individuals consistent with healthy brain activity. And you've already made some sort of surprising discoveries in this area, haven't you? Yes. The first thing that we discovered is that, much to our surprise, we found that the messenger RNA levels for a number of different ion channels can vary three or four or five-fold across preparations, or some of the strengths of some of the synapses can vary quite considerably three, four, five-fold across preparations. And those were much larger ranges than we would have expected a priori. One of the things that we're now looking for is the kinds of compensatory mechanisms by which cells might balance a small value in one property or parameter with a larger small value in another property or parameter to maintain constant function. So when you make a discovery like this that's really not what you expected, it leads to different questions, right? Yes. And that's exciting. Yes, absolutely. We came to this fairly gradually over the last 10 or 12 years, largely led by computational models we were building. So we were building models that were designed to 
capture some of the properties of our cells. And it's very natural in building a model and very easy in building a model to start playing with the parameters to see how sensitive the behavior of the model is to one or another of those properties. And it was some of those models that first suggested that there could be multiple solutions to similar outputs and that those multiple solutions might have large ranges of parameter regimes. And then that drove us back to the biology to ask how large can they really be and how large are they really in the biology. Now it's driving us to go further and to do experiments that I would really call a paradigm shift. Now we're trying to measure in an individual animal as many parameters as possible so that we can look for correlations between four or five or six different parameters in the same preparation. And that's an entirely different way of collecting data than people would usually do. So your research findings really have implications for a lot of other areas. I think so. When I give talks, people come up to me and say, wow, you just changed the way I thought about the experiment I'm going to do. And that might be someone working in rats or working in monkeys or something. And then this is really an example of what basic science can do. Our work is not going to tell someone working in a mouse that particular channel is doing X. Our work says maybe you should analyze your data differently to learn what you need to learn. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. There's sort of a difference in perspective that says, yes, you have to do the measurements you have to do in your system, but maybe if you design the experiments a little bit differently or maybe you analyze your data a little bit differently, you'll see something that you might not have thought to see by virtue of what we've learned. And we've learned a new way to see because we have the simple system to work with. Just to bring to a different topic that I think does relate, on the subject of plasticity, which, you know, a few years ago was a non-subject and now, at least among those of us on the outside, seems like a hot subject, your findings are totally consistent with plasticity, aren't they? I mean, it shows that plasticity is really at a very basic level. Well, there are many different kinds of plasticity, but if you go back to neuromodulation, you can see that the same circuit can do many different things depending on its modulatory environment. So that's short-term behavioral plasticity. That tells you how hormones can influence behavior. Then if you want to think about changes in circuits that underlie long-term storage of information, like stable memory formation, it becomes extremely important to know how outputs depend on the underlying parameters. Because if you teach an animal something and measure something and something changes, you need to know whether that's a change that's actually going to change the way the circuit works. You have to have a way of framing that question. Sometimes you could have a 20% change be very important and a five-fold change be very unimportant. And so our way of thinking sort of changes the way in which people think about how to think about even memory formation in terms of the underlying neural mechanisms. In your papers that I read, one of the ideas that stuck out in my mind was the fact that you pointed out that things like these channels have turnover right. compared to the life of the neuron, yet its basic structure, and I mean basic function, has to stay the same. Right. There's a whole conundrum 
in biology in general, but is particularly acute in the nervous system. But it's, it's a problem that biology faces, period, which is how do you maintain constant structure and constant function despite the fact that you have these incredible turnovers of underlying molecules and even cells in some tissues. So, for example, your gut epithelium is replacing its cells constantly, but the epithelium has to maintain a constant function. That's at sort of at one level. In terms of the nervous system or your heart, you have cells that will live in a healthy human for 70, 80, 90 years, and the channel proteins that give them their characteristic firing properties are turning over in minutes or hours or days or weeks. And so every single neuron in your body, as well as your heart cells, as well as other cells, they're constantly rebuilding themselves. They're turning over their components at a very, very, very high rate. And so in terms of the nervous system, one has to step back and say, oh my God, you know, every single neuron is constantly replacing all of its molecular components. And yet that neuron in the circuit in which it's found has to maintain a good deal of stable structure and function. And so this is a problem that we've been studying for the last 15 or 18 years. And that problem moved from my laboratory via Gina Trigiano, who developed what we now call synaptic scaling, to large numbers of people who are really trying to understand the interplay between what we now call homeostatic mechanisms in the brain with the plasticity mechanisms in the brain to try and understand how the brain can be both stable and plastic at the same time. So it's a pretty exciting time to be a neuroscientist. It is, it is. It's very exciting. Is there anything else about your particular work that you would like to share before we close? I don't think so. I think I probably hit on the major things that we're worried about now. As we close, Eve, I'd like to just ask you if you have any advice for students who are interested in neuroscience. Yes, I have some very important advice, which is don't worry about the future. Study what most fascinates you and just really, really enjoy the work. Don't worry about all the dire prognostications about what will or won't happen don't worry about people saying, oh, you'll never get a job, you'll never do this, you'll never do that. If you really love what you're doing, I really believe it'll work out. People have been saying there won't be any jobs for a long time, I guess. Since my first year in graduate school. And, you know, in my first year of graduate school, there were not very many neuroscientists in the world. I'm not saying it's going to work out for every single individual, but I really do believe that there's so much fascinating work to be done and that it's a time when the field is just exploding. There are so many important human health implications of so much of the basic and more applied work. It's a wonderful time to be starting. So I would just say go for it. Thank you. Well, thank you. I want to take just a moment to thank everyone who helps this show financially via premium subscriptions, Patreon, or direct donations via PayPal. For the last few months, I've been reminding you that the income from this show is actually an important part of my budget. But to be honest, that hasn't had much impact on the number of people who are actually supporting the show. Ironically, I have been getting more offers for advertising. Therefore, I wanted to mention that if you do not like ads, 
All you have to do is sign up for a premium subscription or support the show via Patreon. I also want those of you who are already supporting the show to know that ad-free versions are available as a benefit, in addition to episode transcripts and audio versions of the new Facebook Live sessions, which I'm recording every month. If you'd like to know more about these options, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. In preparing for this month's podcast, I went back to read the transcript of this interview. And the first thing that struck me was that although it was recorded in early 2009, everything Dr. Martyr said remains incredibly relevant, including her concerns that women are still underrepresented in the highest professional levels of science. It was interesting that when I asked her about what tools she had developed, she did not mention her work with the dynamic clamp technique. As I tried to emphasize last month, Dr. Martyr was instrumental in the development of this important technique that uses computer simulation to introduce artificial membrane or synaptic conductances into biological neurons and to create hybrid circuits that contain real and model neurons. I guess this technique has now been around for over 20 years, and it has become a widely used tool for the study of neural systems at the cellular and circuit levels. And as I mentioned last month, I think it's definitely worthy of a Nobel Prize, especially when taken along with the rest of Dr. Martyr's work. During our interview, Dr. Martyr focused on what she sees as a key discovery, which is the role of neuromodulation. Her work with the 30-neuron somatic gastric ganglion provides information that has implications for scientists working with larger nervous systems. First, neuromodulation, which means that the neurons are influenced by various neurotransmitters and other neuropeptides, even away from the synapse itself, means that just having the wiring diagram is not enough. Also, as I talked about last month, her team has discovered that the variability of individual neurons is much more than had ever been expected. This finding has far-reaching implications. For example, I've talked in the past about why the digital computer is an inadequate model of the brain. Consider the implications from Dr. Martyr's work. First, modeling any single neuron accurately would require modeling all the various neuromodulators and how they affect that neuron. Even more significantly, Dr. Martyr's work implies that individual neurons are highly dynamic so that even if you could model a neuron accurately, you would then face the problem of how to model the fact that its various characteristics may be constantly changing. Back in 2009, I concluded, thus it appears to me that at least for the foreseeable future, any attempt to model even a simple brain will require simplifying assumptions that will cause it to diverge from what real brains do. Now, since then we've talked to people like Jeff Hawkins about his work in this area And we know that he is attempting to incorporate some of this dynamic behavior. And there are other researchers like Seth Grant who are uncovering how this variability is expressed at the genetic level. 
I hope to have Dr. Grant back on the show soon to talk about some of his recent work at the level of the synapse. But next month, I am hoping to do an episode that's a little less technical because I know this show has a very diverse audience, which is something I really appreciate. Some of you really dig the technical details, but my goal is to keep our eyes on the big picture. In the case of Dr. Martyr's work, this means realizing that biological variability is an innate feature of nervous systems at every level. This presents a profound challenge to experimental design, but it also means that those of us on the outside of this field can look forward to many years of both fascinating and surprising discoveries. Science is not just a set of facts to be memorized. It's an ongoing process that teaches us the value of mental flexibility. As always, you will find complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can leave me feedback on the website, but I respond much more consistently to email. My email is brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. If you write to me before the 1st of December 2018, I can include your comment or question in the December Facebook Live, which will be devoted to episodes 147 and 148. That is Eve Martyr's work. A few months ago, I started doing my monthly Facebook Live session on the first Thursday of every month at 8 p.m. Central Time. The goal is to provide a way for listeners to share their questions and comments and to create some premium content for those of you who are supporting my work via premium and Patreon. The way it works is that every month I provide a brief recap of a recent episode and then I take questions and comments from listeners. These can be submitted live during the event or, as I just described, you can send them to me ahead of time via brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to watch the live Facebook, just go to the Brain Science Podcast fan page on the first Thursday of every month. But as I said, premium and Patreon supporters will get an audio-only version of this every month. In September, I will be talking about episode 144, which was language in the brain, So depending on when you're listening to this, you may still have time to submit feedback on that episode. In October, we'll talk about Mary Ann Wolfe's interview. And in November, we will talk about episode 146. And in December, we will talk about both 147 and 148. So it'll give us another chance to talk about Eve Martyr's work. I'm really looking forward to incorporating more and more listener feedback into these sessions as more people get into the habit of submitting episode-specific feedback. Of course, I love to hear about how the show has impacted you personally and or professionally. Finally, I need to urge, again, that those of you who are interested in coming on next year's trip to Australia need to contact me as soon as possible. I'm trying to sort back through the emails of people who said they're interested, but it's going to be a lot easier if you would just go ahead and write to me again. I apologize for asking, but I also realize that we've got this time constraint. There is room for 16 people, and we can stretch it up to 20, but a 50% deposit is due on October 1st. I honestly didn't realize that this was going to be due so soon. This is my mistake for not making clearer announcements before this. 
but it means that I'm going to be working really hard to get the word out in the next few weeks. So if you get an extra newsletter on this topic, please don't unsubscribe. If you will email me at brainsciencepodcast.gmail.com, I will send you a PDF with all the information you need to decide if you can come. Remember, October 1st. As a part of this trip, I'm hoping to do listener meetups in Melbourne and Sydney, but I won't have the details for these until closer to the trip, probably early in 2019. If you live in Australia and you're interested in having me speak while I'm there, please do email me now because I am starting to work on that part of the schedule. I'm really excited about finally going to Australia But I really think it would be a lot more fun if you could come. And even if you can't come with me to Australia, I appreciate you listening and look forward to talking with you again very soon. Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell is copyright 2018 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this show to share it with others. But for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Music